Um, today we're in Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Uh, it it, it kind of ends in the middle of something, but I, I didn't want to go on because there's so much to say about those this passage, uh, which is really kind of a sad, sad passage in Scripture because it's the passage about uh, the nation of Israel um, being defeated by their enemies when God had promised victory and promised them the, the land and that everywhere Joshua set his foot, he, it would be his and he'd be victorious. And then right after Jericho, he faces this big defeat. And so it's a tough passage, but I think it has a lot to say to us. But before we start, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for each one that's come this morning. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work through the word, uh, even this difficult passage, to encourage us and show us how faithful you are in, in ways that we don't always look for, but in ways that demonstrate your faithfulness. So be with us now. Help us have ears to hear and help us to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage, Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shibarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, and he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So previously we read of the conquest of Jericho and, and God's strict instructions to destroy everything in the city except for the metals that were to be dedicated to God. They would be cleansed by fire and set aside for sacred use and later on be a part of the building of the, the future temple. So the utter destruction of everything in Jericho 
was God's judgments on the spiritual condition of that city. It was an indication of how separate God's people are to be from the depravity in the world. As Jesus indicated, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And I will remind you often as we go through uh, the book, because often we have visitors and they're going, well, what is this? These guys are killing each other. and Why did God command this? But this is a unique situation. A theocratic nation, the only one that really ever existed, Israel. It's a one-time event in world history. God directed them to carry out his will. God was the king of the nation at this time. And no nations since have been so clearly directed by God. God does use nations to judge other nations. We see that clearly in scripture, even to judge Israel. But we see in scripture that God holds them accountable when they're excessively cruel, such as when uh, the Babylonians conquered Israel. God judged Babylon because they were overly cruel with God's people. The judgment on the people of Canaan now that is taking place in this passage came after 400 years of God's patience with them as they increasingly became depraved in their behavior and worship of demonic gods. So it's, it's not that, wow, God just goes in and wipes out people and makes a place for his own people. This is the judgment of God after 400 years of patience. They'd heard 400 years earlier from Melchizedek, who taught them righteousness. He was the king of righteousness, and yet they'd, they'd fallen to this degree. The land had become defiled by the activities of the people of the land. If Israel took those possessions, they too would become defiled by their possessions. God doesn't have a double standard. This is not about ethnicity. All through the history of Israel, we find other cultures being brought in. Uh, Rahab, in our last passage, who was a person of Jericho, and all her family were incorporated into Israel. When they left Egypt, Egyptians joined them as they left. It says a great multitude left with them. So this is not, as some people would want to make it, about ethnic cleansing or ethnic genocide. This is the judgments of God on a culture that was so depraved. Depravity is just as evil, if not more so, when it's exhibited by the people of God. This cleansing by fire of the meadows was a physical picture of a spiritual reality. It's true in a spiritual sense for God's people today as well. There are numerous things that defile our culture today. Amen? I'll name a few. Pornography. Political deception and hatred. Bribery. Injustice. The destruction of genders. Hedonism. And maybe the most prevalent of all, the worship of wealth. Every born-again follower of Jesus should destroy these things from their life. We cannot tolerate them or we'll cease to be a follower of Jesus. What fellowship does light have with darkness? If we're clinging to worldliness, we eventually become an enemy of God, James tells us in James 4.4. 4. The history of Israel bears out this theme. 
They would draw close to God. They'd obey his commands. They'd get serious about following God, and God would bless them physically because that's what he promised to do. And so they would prosper. And then in their prosperity, they would stop looking to God and increasingly desire the things that the pagans had. The culture would then start to decline and eventually be overcome by their enemies. And then they would repent. They'd seek God, and the cycle would start all over again. It's obvious where our nation is in the cycle. Most importantly, where are you in the cycle? Because it happens to our individual lives as well. May God help us to always passionately and purposefully dedicate ourselves to loving and obeying our Savior and Lord. Amen? Verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You know, you can do this. There's a really interesting search you can do in Scripture of the words, but God. Uh, you'll often find God intervening. Some situation was going to happen. Some men were going to hurt other men, other people, and, but God. Somebody failed to do what they were supposed to do, and there was judgment coming, but God. And then you read how God intervened and saved and, and had mercy and grace. But now notice how this chapter begins, but the people. That gives you a little warning of what's to come. When you have but God, you go, all right. When you have but the people, you go, oh, no, <laughs> look out. You will find God often intervening to save people from the wrath of men. Everything was looking great. They had just recommitted themselves to God before the fall of Jericho. Remember the circumcision that took place after so many years. They're renewing their vows to be in the covenant of God. And they watch God bring this incredible victory where the walls just miraculously fall flat. But the people. I can say that God spared my life a number of times when I did stupid things in my youth. But I, you fill in the blank. I was disobedient and consequences came. Thank God that he remembers our frame that we are but dust. And that his grace and mercy are so wonderful. But when our actions turn too many people, when we're hardening our hearts to too great a degree, God may insist on the justice that we deserve to turn us out of his love. And he holds us who know better to this, a stri the strictest standard. I know now in my life, I, he won't let me get away with little things. <laughs> it's like, maybe I can do this. No. <laughs> broke faith is an interesting term. They broke faith because it is used in scripture regarding adultery. It's breaking covenant vows that someone has made. Israel had betrayed their covenant God. And this hints at the intimacy of the love of God for the people of Israel. 
And yet, instead of responding with faithfulness, Achan responded by breaking the covenant vows. One man sinned, but the whole nation was charged. Does that seem fair to you? Surely no one else except Achan's family knew what he did. So why is the nation held responsible? I think it's something we should look at carefully because it's very different from our culture and the way that we think. The conquest of Canaan was just beginning. Have you ever talked, heard that uh, illustration of if you're drawing a, a straight line to go from this point to that point and you start off a half a degree off, how at, the further you get, the further off it gets, right? This is the beginning, and so this is a special time in their history. They're just taking the promised land, and starting off with a little disobedience would mean that before long, the whole nation would be in rebellion. You see, our sin does not only affect ourselves, but it also affects your family, and your family affects your city, and your city affects your country, and your country affects the world. We cannot sin as an island unto ourselves. We are united with others. Husband and wife are one. Those in fellowship in Christ are one. Remember Paul's metaphor of the body, how we're all different parts, but we make up one body. When one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers. My disobedience will affect us all. Your disobedience affects us all. If something's a little bit contaminated, it's contaminated. If I gave you a cookie and said, there's just a little bit of arsenic in part of it, it's a bad cookie and you're not going to eat it, right? This has a lot to do with the direction of our nation today. We can whine about it, but maybe we, instead we should focus on influencing others by our godly lives. Americans are individualist, and most of the world is still tribal and extended family and culture. And that, that's what makes it difficult for us to grasp this reality that others are held responsible, that we're not independent of others. God should not bless, could not bless the nation when there was outright disobedience. Those not involved directly, suffer because of what rebels against God do. We say it's not fair, but that's not because God's wrong. It's because in man's free will, someone chose to rebel against God's goodness, which then affects others. If there's compromise in the life of an individual, it affects the whole congregation. In this chapter, we'll see the whole lineage of Achan back to the son of Israel listed going both backward and forward. And I believe that God lists it twice because we should realize that our actions also can honor or shame our ancestors. And that's another cultural issue that we're in America kind of unfamiliar with. We don't, it's hard for us to relate to. I, when I lived in Japan, I could see it clearly because Eastern culture is extremely aware of how someone's actions affect the family name. That's one reason the Ten Commandments 
tell us to honor our father and mother. A godly life honors your heritage. Verses 2 and 3. So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and he said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And when they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack it. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So the people were moving northward, and the first small city to the north um, and up in the higher country westward was the city of Ai. And the spies thought that rather than have all the nation move up that ridge and up onto that area, just take a few thousand men. They could easily take it. I mean, what did it take to conquer Jericho? I mean, God just does it, right? But what was different in the siege of Jericho? God gave them the plan, right? And what was God's plan here? And who's going to fight the battle? Is it the Lord or them? What had begun at the direction of the commander of the hosts of heaven is now being decided by men and their good suggestions. I say good suggestions. I'm sure they meant well. Their triumph had resulted in self-confidence rather than increased trust in the Lord. We all have inclinations and good ideas, but what does God say? And what is he speaking to you? Had Joshua so quickly forgotten that the battle belongs to the Lord? We too can rely on past spiritual victories. When all our testimonies are from years ago, we should check our present spiritual state. We are either moving forward and onward and upward in our faith and trust in Christ, or we are slipping backward into confidence in what we can accomplish on our own. The battles before us should always be met with prayer as we wait on the Lord for direction. Verses 4 and 5. So about 3,000 men went up from there, up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, for sure, I had heard about the fall of Jericho, and they prepared for battle to do their best in battle. And, but actually, you know, if, if I was a little city and this big walled city of Jericho collapsed and I heard about that, the only sane thing would be to do would be to either flee or surrender when you see them approaching and say, hey, you're God's God, we surrender, please have mercy on us. But they decided that if they prepared enough and were confident enough, they could beat this God of Israel. And... However, God had had enough of the wickedness in their hearts as well. So I imagine the army of Israel, because it says a little bit later from the gates, I imagine the army of Israel going, marching up to the gates. Let's see what God's going to do. And they march right up to the gate. And then all of a sudden, everything gets poured down on them. And uh, thousands of arrows are shot into the group. And they flee. Now, that's my guess. We don't, 
we don't know, but we know they quickly, the battle went south and they headed south away and fled. And while fleeing down the slope into the Jordan Valley, their backs were exposed and vulnerable. The effect on Israel was disastrous because just like before, the, the Amorites' courage melted away. Now their hope and courage is melting away. God wasn't going to collapse every wall and let them go about the conquest in their own way. This defeat came for a reason. Often defeat and grief bring us to our knees to ask God why, to ask him what happened. Why is there so much pain? Why is there this suffering? And sometimes it's to show us where we've been disobedient. God whispers to us in our good times, but he shouts to us in our pain. I'm not implying that all pain or trouble is because we are disobedient, but that can be the case. And we should search our hearts when we face difficulty to see if it is. There's always a reason whether we understand it or not. God's always ready to speak to us if we will listen. Sometimes for conviction, sometimes for comfort. We must be eager to listen. It's natural for us to wonder about those who died. Why them? Why then? But God has numbered our days. We really can't answer that question either. We know it was time for judgment on the people of Canaan, but what about these dead Jews? God knows what we would do in the future. I believe he takes us home at just the right time. It always seems too early for those who are not aged, but we must trust God that he knows best, even in the case of children. We cannot see what would have been, but God can, and only God knows what might have been. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. The 72 elders and Joshua fell on their faces before the ark of the Lord. Now, uh, putting dust on their heads is, is a sign of grief and mourning. And they were waiting to hear from the Lord something that they should have done before the battle. To sit down and listen to the Lord. At least they knew where to turn. We might have, if it was us, we might have examined the generals tried to determine where the strategy failed. Joshua could have placed blame on the leaders and their lack of courage. But where was the problem really? Joshua learned from Moses where to turn when trouble strikes. The practical can be examined later, but first go to God and ask him what went wrong. The more we see of the might and power of God, the more we are accountable to him. They had seen miracles in the wilderness, the Jordan River parting, the amazing walls of Jericho crumbling, and they should have known to seek God's direction before the attack on Ai. So who's responsible for the death of those 36 men? Joshua? Achan? the high priest? Or maybe the correct answer is all of Israel. 
when we face defeats as a family or a congregation, we should be careful not to blame an individual. Though one person may be the source of it, the congregation should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Anyone and everyone should speak up. Leadership should humbly admit their failure. And all should thank God that his mercies are new every morning. Amen. I've been in a congregation that tried to hide moral failure, and it permeated the whole congregation. Verse 7, And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. So Joshua laying there before the Lord, waiting for God to speak, and finally he just voices the frustration and the and that anguish that's in his heart, asking God why God didn't go before them like he did before. Why were they defeated? Were the Amorites going to destroy them? Wouldn't it have been better just to stay on the other side of the Jordan? Now, we can berate Joshua for questions that were contrary to the many promises God had given, but I think once again we can relate and have some compassion for him. If we had given orders that ended in losing 36 lives, husbands and fathers that would never be there for their families, we would probably pray something similar. His prayer is a prayer of agony of spirit. It echoes many of the murmurings of the Jews in the wilderness. And this, this is what we resort to when we're despondent, when we can't understand what happened and why there's such pain. We express our complaint to God when we don't understand what God has allowed. We forget about the promises of God and past victories. And you know what? God can take it. If you read the Psalms, you see over and over again, David crying out to God, complaining about the situation. And then God encourages him and he starts to see, sometimes doesn't see, but still speaks faith. Better to cry out to God in prayer than to keep it all inside and become bitter. Verse eight, O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned its back before their enemies? You see, in that type of warfare, to turn your back was to expose your vulnerable side to the enemy's arrows and swords. And the same is true in spiritual warfare. The description of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 has nothing for the back. And that's because we're always to be on the offensive. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? We always have the superiority in spiritual battles. The commander of the host is much uh, greater than any forces that we face. And he proved it on the cross. And never forget that. Amen? Verse 9, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua is afraid they've lost the psychological advantage that the neighboring tribes are going to hear and they're all going to come together confidently and surround them and destroy them. 
but it seems he's even more concerned for the Lord's name. If Israel fails for any reason, it reflects on the great name of God. It'll cause the people of the land to have less honor for the God of, that Israel represents. So I hope by now you're starting to see the spiritual parallels from these physical battles and our spiritual battles. We have personal battles with our old nature and temptations from this world. We have battles with the culture around us trying to suppress the truth of Jesus. We have battles with the forces of darkness that would deter us from letting Jesus shine through us and have us settle for something less than God has for us. But if we give in, what will God do for his great name? In our grief, we forget that God is more than capable of defending his name. The reality is that this defeat was defending the holiness of his name. We have the incredible privilege of representing the creator of the universe, but when we misrepresent him, like Achan did by taking Jericho's polluted things, we're sending the wrong message to the world. We're saying our God isn't any different from the other gods and that he really doesn't change lives that much. Our message becomes mixed and confusing. The result is people thinking less of Jesus. If we will really be separate from worldliness, like we talked about in the last lesson on Joshua, if we will not compromise with the polluted things and will serve people in love, letting the life of Christ be manifest in our mortal bodies, then people will be drawn to Jesus. We will gain ground for the kingdom of, of God and no walls or gates will be able to withstand the assault on evil to rescue the souls of men. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his good purposes. Even defeat is a blessing from God to turn our hearts and minds toward him to seek his will. But now let me turn to our nation. The polluted things, as Brother Kip shared last week, are no longer recognized as being polluted. In fact, they are lauded. Our entertainment and educational systems have perverted our culture's perspective. We'd like to blame our leaders, but nations get the leaders they deserve. And while we love this nation and its original principles, the balance of power and equal representation to be judged by our peers and moral principles to be honored and laws obeyed, we see this rapidly slipping away. Isn't it fascinating that the army of the Lord was defeated by a town spelled A-I? Our overconfidence and greed has led to some major defeats. The watering down of the truth of scripture and the outright mocking of it by so many tells us we're no longer the nation we once were. The only answer to spiritual defeat is the one we see in this passage. There must be a humbling before the Lord like Joshua and the elders humbled themselves before God. 
And I'm afraid that won't happen until we are completely desperate. But remember, church, we are citizens of heaven. Amen? We can humble ourselves before the Lord, and the church can rise up victorious, despite the culture in which it exists. That's what happened in Rome. As Rome got increasingly wicked, the church grew stronger and stronger. The culture was collapsing and the nation was splintering, but the church was gaining ground. Hallelujah. That's what's happening right now in Iran. We serve the same almighty God today. Amen. A hymn calls us, Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Rise up, O men of God. The church for you does wait. Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. And the way to rise up is to fall down on our faces before God and to rid our lives of the polluted things. James 1.27 tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to look after, after the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let us put away the polluted things from our midst. Let us love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us look to the leading of the Word and the Holy Spirit instead of our natural tendencies and so-called good ideas. It's then that His life in us will serve others in, who are in need. Shine the light in the darkness and overcome the spiritual walls that must come down for the kingdom of God to advance in the hearts of mankind. Jesus promised, that if we're standing on him, the solid rock, the truth, the gates of hell will not be able to withstand our assault. That is quite a promise, amen? I want to close by singing that song. I know many of you do not know it, but you'll catch on really quick. And then I'll close with the prayer and benediction. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>